Hey everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of sex, or the A to Z of sex if you're in North America. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a psychologist, sex and intimacy coach, and a gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist. And I am working my way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. I created this podcast to help you learn to express your desires, learn more about desires, spice up your relationships, and create those sizzling relationships that you have always wanted. I do this through solid science, real-life stories, and conversations with an exciting array of experts. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies that will help you choose the relationship style that works best for you and create exactly what you want and need. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and you can take advantage of the subscriber bonuses. And if you want to know more, head over to drlauribethbisbee.com and sign up for my email list so that you can find out exactly what is going on in my world from week to week. But for now, come join me and enter my world of sex and relationships. See you inside. Hello, welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a psychologist, an accredited advanced gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist, sex and intimacy coach, and I've spent the last 35 plus years helping people to create and maintain incredible relationships that contain sizzling sex and are without shame. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time, and today the letter is V. And V is for vulva. Today, I want to talk about the vulva because as an erogenous zone, the vulva is often forgotten about. We spend a lot of time talking about the vagina and about the clitoris, but we don't talk about the vulva. So first, let's define what the vulva is. The vulva is the external genitalia. So it actually includes the clitoris. Um, whereas the vagina is the internal canal. And uh, if you're over a certain age, you probably always refer to that area of female genitalia as the vagina, but it's not the correct terminology. Um, more of the nerve endings in the area are actually external to the vagina than internal to the vagina. And most are in the clitoris. Um, but there are lots around the clitoris as well and around the rest of the vulva. There are two sets of skin folds that are part of the vulva. The inner set are called the labia minora and tend to be small and hairless. I say that, but there is such a wide variety of normal that um, in a lot of cases, they're not in fact small, they're actually quite large um, and sometimes are larger than the labia majora, which are the outer lips. 
And for those of you who didn't know, labia is Latin for lips. The outer lips are the ones that have more of the hair on them. Again, you know, no hair on the inner lips, but that's not always 100% true. The inner and outer lips meet to protect the vaginal opening and also to protect the opening of the urethra, which is just above the vaginal opening and is where um, women or people with uh, female genitalia urinate from. Um, I'm saying this and some people will be like, well, of course we knew that, that's so obvious, but you would be surprised how often uh, I meet people who believe that urination comes from the vagina and it doesn't. It's a separate hole. It's its own separate exit from the body. Uh, There are the skein glands, which are just to either side of the urethra, and I'll talk a bit about those later. And there are also the Bartolin glands, which are just inside the opening of the vagina, one on each side. And the Bartolin glands are the ones that produce what you recognize most often as lubricant um, that is secreted with arousal, sometimes not arousal. Coloring. Um, let's talk about a bit about this because people are often surprised uh, that the coloring in this area of their body will change. There are a variety of things that influence pigment in our genital area. Some of these changes have to do with medications, which increase melanin production. Others are changes relating to hormones. So pigment changes can happen during puberty, during pregnancy, and um, after childbirth, but um, and menopause. Um, but also, frequently, color changes with age. People get darker with age. Um, and that is surprising to a lot of people. However, it's true. It's obviously more noticeable in people who start out with paler skin tones um, and they can go from being pink um, or and quite pale to brown. And this can be a little bit shocking. Especially if you're somebody who doesn't usually look at yourself. And so you would not have necessarily noticed the changes. And one of the first things I like to ask people to, if they've done, is if they've actually looked at their own genitals. This is actually a pretty important thing to do and to do on a regular basis, which I will talk some about diseases and problems and issues that arise in this area of the body a little bit later in this podcast. But part of the way that we know if we're healthy is when, uh, when we can, when we see changes. Um, and if we've never really looked at ourselves, then we don't know. Also, uh, a lot of people, unfortunately take what they think we, you should look like from looking at pornography. Um, and, um, that includes photographs as well as movies. Um, if you're doing that, there's a few things I want to point out. Uh, number one, uh, there's editing and there's Photoshop and that happens a lot. So um, 
what you're seeing isn't actually necessarily what's there. So that's problematic to start with. Um, and number two, people have different kinds of procedures, believe it or not, surgeries, um, and they engage in um, color lightening and things because they are acting and they're showing their body um, on film. Um, and so that becomes, unfortunately, the standard that people think that they need to arise to. And I would point out that this is a standard that comes from the male gaze. That is, most uh, pornography that shows female genitalia has been produced for the male gaze, at least initially. These days, it's a little bit different, which is great. So there's pornography for anyone who wants to be entertained in that way. But most originally uh, is produced for the male gaze. And so it is what men believe we should look like. I just say that again, what men believe we should look like. And because we often don't look at ourselves and don't look at a lot of other people like us, we don't really know how much variation there is. And that's really problematic. Um, it's important that um, we understand how much difference there is. Um, and there has been recently um, quite a bit of uh, artwork to highlight the differences. If you look at Jamie McCartney's work, um, this was the artist who was trying to um, do vagina casts in every country of the world. So Volvo casts in every country of the world um, and wanted to do it um, also in all 50 states. Um, this started in 2008 when Jamie McCartney cast over 400 women's genitalia in plaster of Paris for the Great Wall of Vagina. And because it was so popular, well, he kept going. Um, so it's worthwhile looking at this and others because it gives you a much better understanding how much variety there is in the human form. And that's really important because labiaplasty, which is plastic surgery for the labia. So it's surgical reduction of the labia and it has been incredibly fast growing. And um, it's because people have thought that there was a particular um, look that a vulva was supposed to have. So this was in part an effort to combat this by showing, oh my God, look, look at how 
much difference and variety and beauty there is. So there was um, 10 panels from the original exhibition and um, it is still being exhibited at the moment the show is in Miami, which is interesting considering what's going on in Florida right now. And it's due to be in Miami through 2020, through uh, 2020, December 2025. Um, you can make a virtual visit and look at the panels. Um, there's also a library that allows you you can join the library and you can um, view the book so you can actually get close-up views if you want um, and in fact you can still take part there are casting kits at the moment there's a male and female team who are still running the project so you could model for the continuing casting kits they're still creating walls and they still have models um or you can get a cast that you can do at home they also do some private casting and you can find out how you can get a cast um you can upload photos anonymously um, so when this started, it was originally called the Great Wall of Vagina, but it's now called the Great Wall of Vulva because it's more accurate. So there is now a photo, photo gallery and there are artworks made from it. It's a brilliant way of getting people comfortable with the wide variety that is amazing, the diversity that is out there, um, and helping us to become more comfortable with ourselves and become more comfortable with looking at ourselves, which is essential. Um, as I said, to be able to figure out whether you're healthy or not, um, and also to increase your confidence when it comes to sex, when it comes to any kind of partnered sex, that you don't have to worry about what you look like and what's going to be seen. Okay. So having said that, People often talk about the, the clitoris as being the part that swells and that becomes, um, that is most sensitive, that becomes swollen with blood during sexual stimulation. However, the whole of the vulva will often swell with blood during sexual stimulation. Um, there are a variety of things to consider. Um, which include taking your time actually looking at what happens when you stimulate the lips or if you use the mons and the fat pad depending on how much you have to give indirect pressure on the clitoris and taking your time to notice where your sensitivities are there's actually a lot more that can be done in exploration of the whole of the vulva um, to increase pleasure, which is often missed because people go either straight for the vagina or straight for the clitoris and just ignore the rest of the area. 
I've already talked a bit about the Bartholin glands. Um, Bartholin glands in general um, are, you know, quite important, obviously, because they provide lubrication. They're mostly problem-free, although occasionally um, they will get blocked or there'll be a cyst. Um, and so a hard lump will form. And, and if it's not infected, you'll just feel a lump. Uh, one of the best ways to get rid of that is to use a hot compress like you would if um, you get a sty in your eye. It's the same idea. So if you get a sty in your eye, basically your tear duct has gotten clogged. Um, if your tear duct has gotten clogged or or you actually develop a little growth um, through one of the little ducts on, um, on the outside of your eye, you can use a hot compress that'll usually get rid of it. Um, eventually it will open and drain, de-block and drain. Don't squeeze it because that tends not to do anything, but also introduces back, could introduce bacteria because you could um, er erode the skin and then if you have bacteria on your hands and you end up with an infection. When this tends to hurt is when a person um, has an infection, when it becomes infected, the Bartholin gland becomes infected, the cyst becomes infected and it abscesses a bit. So at, at that point, it tends to hurt and you're best off actually going into the doctor and getting them to lance it and drain it. Uh, those uh are the things that you have to look out for with the Bartholin glands. But let's talk a little bit about the skein's glands, and then we'll go back to other issues that arise with the vulva. Um, the skein's glands are actually in the bottom of the vestibule. They're often around the older, the, sorry, the lower part of the urethra, the lower end of the urethra. Um, and they're surrounded by tissue that swells with blood when it's stimulated. So um, there's pressure on them. Sometimes that can result in a person feeling like they, that, that kind of uncomfortable feeling of needing to pee just before orgasm, even though there, there's no urine, they have already peed. There's, they're actually not needing to urinate. It's the pressure around the area because everything is swollen. So there's also pressure on the urethra and that will cause that sort of a, a sensation. Um, they will release fluid particularly during orgasm. And the fluid's been found to be prostate specific, having prostate specific antigen in it, um, which is what the male prostate releases. It's It's been found to be made up of PSA, prostate specific antigen, um, some fructose and some sucrose. It's a milky fluid. Um, and so frequently skein's glands are referred to as the female prostate and they're said to be responsible for female ejaculation. Purpose primarily in part is to lubricate the urethra, but they will swell um, and they will um, get stimulated and fluid can be produced. And it, it is like a, a female ejaculation. The fluid in this case is coming from these glands. It is not coming from the urethra. This is in fact different from squirting. Squirting is a fluid that comes from the urethra. It comes down from the bladder. There is considerable argument still as to whether or not it is urine or contains any urine, but it does come down from the bladder. And squirting is a lot of fluid, usually, whereas female ejaculation coming from the skein's glands is not a lot of fluid. It's like one mil, 
So let's talk a little bit about the problems that we can have with the vulva. I mean, the most common problem that you find with the vulva are problems that involved irritation, right? Irritation and itching and things like that. They're skin-related problems. Those are the most common. Um, and lots of them have the symptom of itching. Some of them have pain and burning. Um, it, thrush is incredibly common. And, and thrush actually is not always in the vagina. When it's in the vagina, there's discharge. But thrush that is um, solely around the, the rest of the vulva may not have a discharge, but there will be itch and soreness. Um, psoriasis is actually also anogenital um, psoriasis is actually also really common for people who have psoriasis. It's not talked about that much. It tends to be unfortunately quite embarrassing for people and um, the itch and peeling and pain can be outrageous. Um, but it's definitely common and well-known and it is really worthwhile Speaking to a doctor, if you have any regularly itchy related conditions to help decide which ones of these are, because um, some can be treated quite well, others not so easily. Um, Lice and planus is a, is a condition where there's pain, but that is also a condition that can happen in other areas of the body. The mouth is one of the most common ones. Dermatitis, um, including eczema, can happen all over the body and also happen in the vulva. Um, it's often due to irritants like chemicals used to freshen the area. Your vagina is self-cleaning. You do not need to use chemicals to freshen your vagina. Um, it, you need to wash the sweat off of the vulva. That's pretty much all there is, right? Um, sometimes underwear that's too tight will cause problems or underwear that doesn't breathe um, so that a moisture is kept in and therefore fungus can thrive. Um, certain soaps can cause problems for people. Lichen sclerosis is a condition that's more common after menopause, tends to be related to hormones. It's a really itchy condition um, and it, it can things can get kind of, the skin can get thin and um, uh, kind of, I don't know, shiny is, is the, the best description. Vaginal atrophy or vulval atrophy. After the menopause, this is related to the decrease in estrogen. The skin becomes pale, itchy, and sore. This is easily treated with topical estrogen. So again, this is why it's really important to see a physician to figure out what is actually going on or a nurse practitioner um, who has experience with this, like make sure it's a specialist. But if you can find out, there are some really good um dermatologists that specialize in the genital area. And if you can figure out what's going on, the treatment is different depending on which one of these conditions. And all of these conditions are so unbelievably annoying. Um, uh, they can really disturb sleep. Um, breaking the itch scratch cycle is really, really difficult when it's down there. So it's it's well worth seeing someone. So those are the most common conditions. And then we have one of the most um, upsetting conditions, which is vulvodynia. And vulvodynia is a condition where there's pain, burning, stinging, or rawness. It, it's it, 
Often it's very hard to describe the pain. The pain can be just in the vulva. It can extend into the vagina. It can extend to the clitoris as well. It can become chronic. It can relapse and remit. Um, and vulvodynia is the diagnosis given when there is pain in this area with an unknown cause. So that's not really terribly helpful. It's like we've eliminated everything else. There's still pain. We don't know what it is. So that's the label. People who have researched into this area highlight the fact that common causes include injury to the nerves in the area, multiple past infections, sensitive screen, skin. Um, some people can gain this condition uh, because of pelvic floor weakness, instability, or spasm. Sometimes elevated inflammatory levels are found. Excuse me. Um, treatments range from creams, uh, medications, um, including um, antidepressants, um, which are which which help with itch. Um, and if you didn't know that, now you do. Um, biofeedback um, and and sometimes pelvic floor surgery. And pelvic floor surgery specifically is specifically useful with um, people who have this condition where the pain is in the first third of the vagina as well, and it is not remitting. Um, there is a 60 to 90% success rate with pelvic floor surgery to help in those situations, but it's very specific condition that it helps with. Um, this condition is both underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed. Uh, it can be underdiagnosed uh, under because um, what is diagnosed instead is vaginismus, which is a different condition, um, or overdiagnosed because now that people know about it, there are some doctors who will diagnose any pain with, with not a very obvious cause as vulvodynia, and it might actually be something that was far more easily treatable. For example, um, where um, an extra fold of, of um, a, a person came in complaining of um, pain during intercourse that had just started, and um, part of the problem was an extra... Um, lesion of skin at the back of the vagina that was causing the problem, the pain, when the penis hit this bit of skin, it was very painful. Um, and nobody had actually done an exam to see that initially. So it wasn't treated for quite a long time because um, nobody done an internal exam and found the deeper cause of the pain. So it's quite important to actually get a full exam and don't um, accept a diagnosis without somebody actually examining the whole area. I know that sounds obvious, but you'd be surprised how often um, people with female bodies are diagnosed and nobody even looks at the area. They listen to you. They don't want to look at it. Um, and so they simply make a diagnosis. Okay, um, another thing that we often don't talk about is vulva cancer, which is an important thing to talk about. Um, there are, are a number of kinds of cancers of the vulva. Um, 
most of them are squamous cell carcinomas, um, which is a main type of skin cell. Um, there's one type that is common, which is a ker- keratinizing type, and it develops in older women. It's not linked to infection with HPV. So it's just something that develops in older women. Um, it tends to be slow growing and um, they catch it because a person notices a change and they take a biopsy of the change. Um, there are warty, warty cancers or basaloid cancers. These are less common. They're more often found in younger women and, and they're connected to HPV infections. It's important to note that there are a number of different types of HPV infections. And this type of cancer is um, connected to only two of the types of HPV infected infections. It is well worth getting vaccinated if you can, making sure that you get looked at. If you should get a lump on your vulva, that you should get that looked at just to make sure. Um, there is another t- subtype that is called Verrucous carcinoma that's slow growing and has a really good prognosis. It looks like a large wart and a biopsy is taken to make sure it's not a b- benign growth and then they can treat it. Um, Paget disease of the vulva is a condition where there's a where there are carcinoma cells found in the top layer of the vulvar skin and 25% of the patients who have that also have an invasive vulvar cancer and either in the sweat glands or in a bartholin gland um, and in the remaining patients the remaining 75% the cancer cells are only in the top layers and haven't grown into the into the skin into the tissue below so obviously if it's only in the top layer it's much easier to treat again important to diagnose um melanomas are rare because those cancers start in the pigment producing cells that give skin color so they're more expo- more common on sun exposed areas of the skin but they can start in the vulva and they make up about about six out of every hundred vulvar cancer. So it's worth looking at that. Um, less than two of every hundred vulvar cancers are sarcomas. Those are also ra- rare. So most doctors do- um, divide vulva cancer into those associated with HPV infection, which is more than half of vulva cancers. Um, and they have the high HPV risk types, and that it tends to occur in younger women, and the older ones develop from the these pre-lesions. They don't know why, <laughs> um, and so th- it's really important to look at your body so you know what's going on, or feel your body, and know when there are changes, and get them looked out um, quite quickly because we don't talk about this a lot of times people don't know that they need to go to the doctor for stuff like this um and having to have parts of this area of your body removed because of cancer is pretty horrific um so making sure that you catch any changes early is extremely important so I will encourage you to examine yourself the same way you do breast examination to see if there are any changes in the breast. You need to 
examine yourself for any changes in the vulva area, any changes in the um, vaginal area, clitoral area. And if you notice changes, get looked at. Um, The last thing I want to talk about in terms of um, issues around the vulva is this modern trend to um, bleaching. Again, this comes from what people think they should look like and the fact that people tend to get darker as they get older. Um, But bleaching can lead to loss of sensation or hypersensation, which you think might be nice, but actually it's likely to drive you nuts in the long term. Um, It can lead to scarring and allergic reactions. It's really a bad idea. So I would encourage you to come to love the color of your body, uh, no matter how many changes you've experienced. Okay, so in the last part of the podcast this week, I'm going to answer two questions um, that have been in my inbox for a little while. Uh, The first one is, what is cuckolding? Cuckolding is a fetish or kink that is when a person is turned on by their partner having sex with someone else. Now, cuckolding can include hearing about their partner having sex with somebody else can include watching their partner having sex with somebody else, being forced to watch, being forced to clean up after their partner has sex with someone else. So that usually involves um, some form of ejaculation or fluids and the partner is forced, I put air quotes around that, to um, clean up often using their mouth and tongue. Um, being forced to watch but not being allowed to touch their partner at all while they're having sex or not being allowed to masturbate. Um, And it can also include humiliation in a variety of forms. So verbal humiliation, like being told how much better the person is than you are, um, or being called a wimp or all sorts of things. Um, But it doesn't have to include humiliation. And a lot of people think that cuckolding does and it doesn't there are there are um many people into cuckolding who aren't don't want to be humiliated and and they're not being hum- actively humiliated they're just enjoying watching their partner with someone else um what most common is is um a man being the cuckold male presenting person being the cuckold um but there are pl- plenty of people of all genders who enjoy this fetish or kink For some, this is a lifestyle. So they interact and socialize with other couples who engage in this kink. And there are lots of communities um, where cuckolds get together um, and all the communities have their own rules and their own rituals and their own uh, different meetups and enjoyments. But there are lots of people who really enjoy being part of a community and see this as a lifestyle. And it is an integral part of their sexual relationships with their partners. For others, it's an episodic kink. It's something that they just enjoy doing once in a while. Some people start with storytelling. So having your partner tell you all about the sex that they've had with other people in the past. So not actively having sex with other people in the present. And others actually orchestrate the whole event and are therefore the dominant ones. And often people think of the cuckold as a submissive one. But in some cases, 
the cuckold is the one who's actually orchestrating the entire event. And some people would say this isn't strictly cuckolding, right? But it is still your partner having sex with someone else, but you would be the person who was orchestrating the event and you would say what was allowed and what could happen and what couldn't happen. And therefore you would be in control. Whereas in the most common form of cuckolding, you're not in control. Um, it's other, it's, uh, although you've agreed and you've consented to what's going to happen, it is your partner who is really in control of the whole situation at your request. Either way, there are a lot of people who really enjoy this kink. The second question that I'm going to answer um, is what is consensual non-consent? I get asked this a lot. I'm going to talk about two types of consensual non-consent. We're first going to talk about a scene. Um, a consensual non-consent scene is a negotiated scene where one party gives up total control, control and autonomy. Now, this includes the ability to give or withdraw consent during the scene, and they give this up to the other party. So some people are freak out at this point. Um, what I will say to you is that even when somebody gives up that ability for within the scene, there are usually still ways of causing the scene to end. The main motivator for doing this is when people want to engage in something that's more, feels more realistic. Um, most common scenes for this are rape scenes or kidnap scenes. They want to be able to shout no and really fight without the scene ending. They're negotiating this so that the scene is more believable to both the person who is experiencing the rape and the person who's raping, <laughs> right? These scenes negotiated are always risky. It's really important to understand that although this is consensual and it's negotiated well, it's still risky. It's risky because um, you don't know how you're going to react to start with. Um, and then I need to be clear, again, no matter what you negotiate, you can always withdraw your consent. You can change your mind at any time. So therefore, even when you're doing this type of scene, there needs to be some way to let your partner know that you want things to stop. In these scenes, usually a person has a lot more latitude. So um, in some scenes, you would negotiate a fairly strict set of, yes, we're going to do this and no, we're not going to do that. But in a consensual non-consent scene, um, there's usually a lot more latitude given to the person who is the one who's in the dominant role. There are also relationships in which consensual non-consent is negotiated. These are often known as 24-7 power exchange or authority transfer-based relationships, master-slave relationships. Again, this is being negotiated. One person is being handed all the authority. However, in these relationships, there's still space to talk about how everyone feels, things that are going well, things that aren't going well, renegotiating things, and you can always walk away. And I think it's really important to understand that. 
that you can always walk away and that both of you know that either of you can always walk away. So I'm often asked from there, how common is this within the kink community? And in my experience, it's reasonably common, though it's not necessarily well negotiated and carefully done. So um, it's been really made popular by the media and by erotica. Um, and of course, in in erotica, it's a fantasy, it's entertainment. And so often people are basing their negotiation on this. And unfortunately, what that means is that it's not well negotiated or carefully negotiated. So this is the area where people are most likely to have difficulties. Before going into consensual non-consenting sex, it's really important to know your partner well. And that this is prior to this support, this sort of activity. This is not the first activity you do with someone. I know that sounds obvious, but you'd be surprised. There are loads of people who will negotiate an episodic scene with somebody that they've never met before. You need significant trust over a period of time, and that will lower the probability of injuries and trauma. So you want to be making sure that your partner responds to your wants and needs and listens well. You want to make sure that your partner knows how to manage a scene that has gone wrong and is observant. And that includes people on both sides, the dominant person and the, and the um, submissive person. It's really important to know your motivations and your desires and be clear about your triggers because intense scenes are much more likely to trigger you. If you're not sure what triggers you, you shouldn't be entering into this kind of scene. It's also important to make sure that you have clear ways of handling your triggers and that you actually talk with the person that you're negotiating with and you make sure that they know what your triggers are and they also know the best way to handle your triggers. I frequently get asked how you can safeguard yourself in order to prevent a misunderstanding in these situations. Uh, the first thing is to know who you're dealing with. Um, so you want to make sure to vet the person with others, specifically about this type of scene, right? This isn't casual play. So you want to make sure that this person has experience. If they don't, that they've actually thought it through. Your communication needs to be expert. So you need to start your negotiation with definitions, clear, clear definitions. It's always good to make sure that someone outside the two of you is, or the group of you, because sometimes these scenes involve more than two people, but make sure that somebody who's not part of it is aware of what you're doing and when and where. Write out an agreement and sign it. You want this to be really clear so that everybody knows what was agreed to in full. If you don't like it, end the scene. You have to take responsibility for your part in the scene. Not enjoying something doesn't mean someone coerced you or did something wrong. And this area is a really tricky area because when people, when a scene goes wrong and people don't have a good time, they frequently look to blame someone. But a scene can be executed as agreed with no one overstepping boundaries and still trigger a negative response. And when that happens, no one's to blame. If you try to end the scene and somebody doesn't, the other person doesn't end it, that would be a fault. That would be a consent violation. But just because you've had a negative experience doesn't mean the other person's done anything wrong. Aftercare is really important 
in this type of scene. So aftercare in general is the activities engaged in after a scene to help both parties return to everyday reality. And with intense play, which is a consensual non-consent is always, um, it's important to help both parties come back from that intense place, especially if it's a dark place, could be a very dark place. The person in the, if you're talking about a rape scene, for example, the person in the role of a rapist needs to receive attention and affection as a person so they know they're not being seen as a monster. And the person in the role of the victim needs to be supported to come back being centered in their usual selves. Also, intense scenes tend to be peak experiences. So helping people make the transition to ordinary life is also important. Um, sometimes aftercare might just be a hot drink and a cuddle. Other times it might mean talking through the scene. Sometimes it, you might have to have water and sugar to rebalance your body. Sometimes it could be checking in over a few days. Sometimes for this type of a scene, it might be useful to organize some of your aftercare with someone else. Someone else who's going to make sure you're settled back down into your home. And so you're doing only the processing of the scene with the person who you did it with. And finally, I'm also, I'm often asked, is there anybody um, who should avoid this type of scene? If you've experienced real life trauma and it's not fully processed, you should avoid consensual non-consent. Using this to try to process trauma, though this is a really popular suggestion at the moment, is not a good idea unless the therapist is supervising and the person who's playing the role of the rapist or kidnapper or dominant is very experienced with stepping into and out of the role. Um, because this is extreme play, the more psychologically healthy you are, the better. So I'm not saying you can never use this if you've experienced real life trauma, that you can never do this. I'm just saying that you want to make sure that your experience, your real life experience has already been processed before you go and do something that is similar to what you experienced. Um, this is extremely exciting play for many people, but the skills needed to engage in this safely are expert level. You need expert level communication, expert level negotiation, and expert level emotional management skills for all the parties involved. So if you're going to engage, you want to make sure your skills and your partner skills are expert level. Don't beat yourself up if it doesn't go well, because that happens, and be willing to get professional help to resolve any issues that arise. Thanks for listening this week. Uh, next week, we will be back for the letter W. If you have anybody you'd like to hear from or a topic you want covered, please email me at lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.com. Um, remember that if you write a review, you are entered into the competition for 30 minutes free with me um, or a free copy of one of my three books. So there is um, the possibility of actually physical, a physical thing to hold in your hand. Um, if you want me to consider you for that competition each month, you need to write a review and you need to email me so that I know that you have written the review and tell me where you've written it. Reviews for the podcast on any uh, platform and reviews for any of my books all count. Have a good week and be safe. And I look forward to seeing you next week.
Thanks for tuning in. You are just listening to the A to Z of sex or the A to Z of sex if you're in North America. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave a review wherever it was you listened to it, but especially head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Reviews really help the show get out there. If you want to support my work, you can support it through my Patreon page. That's Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee on Patreon.com. You can also head over to DrLoriBethBisbee.com and subscribe to my free mailing list, which will keep you updated as to the activities I am getting up to and any special appearances. For people who subscribe to the Patreon, there are special broadcasts, merch, um, and the opportunity to get discounted tickets to a lot of the events that I do. Knowledge gives you power. The more you know, the better your relationships, the better your satisfaction and joy. If you've got suggestions for the show, comments or questions, do email at Beth at drlauriebethbisbee.com and I will try and incorporate them. Have a wonderful week filled with loads of joy. <laughs>